daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Hello and welcome to World Today. I'm Zhao Yang. Coming up, China and the U.S. have agreed to work together toward a meeting between the two heads of state. But Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi says the path to San Francisco will not be smooth sailing. How can both sides work together to achieve results? The 10th Beijing Xiangshan Forum is taking place in the Chinese capital. How important is such a platform during a time of global tensions? And Israeli forces expand ground operations in Gaza, raising concerns of a humanitarian catastrophe. First on today's show, Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi has noted that the road to an expected meeting between Chinese President Xi Jinping and U.S. President Joe Biden will not be smooth sailing, and both sides must work together to achieve results. During a three-day visit to Washington, Wang Yi met with Biden as well as U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken and White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan. The two sides have agreed to work together toward a meeting between the two heads of state on the site of the APEC summit in San Francisco next month. Wang also held talks with business and industrial leaders in the U.S. capital. Wang stated that the driving force for cooperation between China and the U.S. remains strong. For more, we are now joined on the line by Dr. Zhao Hai, Director of International Political Studies at the National Institute for Global Strategy, Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. Dr. Zhao, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Um, so, what do you make of the significance of Wang Yi's visit to Washington? Well, it's a very significant visit because we know in the past six years, there has been no high-level Chinese officials visiting uh, the U.S. And this is the first time Chinese Foreign Minister uh, Wang Yi is uh, visiting Washington, D.C., and in particular meeting with not only uh, same-level officials, but, but also meeting with the President of the United States, President Biden. And uh, we all know that this uh, visit is, itself is very important because two sides have important issues to discuss, but also that this meeting is preparing for the coming uh, summit between the two national leaders, and they are doing some groundwork uh, to prepare for that uh, most important uh, year summit. Yeah, well, actually, we've seen multiple high-level exchanges between China and the U.S. Um, since June this year. Do they signal a window of opportunity to improve ties between the two countries? And how can um, China and the U.S. make the most of this opportunity? Well, yes, uh, I think things. Uh, in June this year, uh, there's been multiple uh, high-level U.S. officials coming to visit China, uh, like uh, uh, Secretary of State Blinken and also uh, Janet Yellen, uh, Raimondo, uh, and uh, uh, other officials. Uh, but uh, this is the first time um, our foreign minister, Wang Yi, visiting the U.S., and uh, hopefully there will be more uh, high-level official communications between the two sides. Um, there are also uh, multiple uh, high-level communication mechanisms uh, being established or re-established or restored. So these are all very uh, positive signs that two sides are improving relations, uh, improving the uh, effectiveness of communication. So if you say there's a window opportunity, uh, I think, yes, there's a window opp opportunity for both sides to improve relations. Um, in particular, that this year uh, is a, a year that without 
a major U.S. election. We all know next year there will be presidential and the uh, election in the United States, so there might be uh, political complications. Um, however, on the other side, uh, the U.S.-China relationship should, should go forward uh, much more smoother than what we have currently, because this is a very important bilateral relationship. It shouldn't be uh, impact um, and uh, being um, you know, stalled by all kinds of domestic political considerations. So hopefully, uh, moving forward, that uh, both sides will have more solid relationship built uh, on top of a uh, more mature bilateral relationship instead of what we have now, that the two sides are pursuing some kind of window of opportunity to improve relations. Yes, and as you said, uh, Wang Yi's visit is paving the way for a potential meeting between um, Chinese President Xi Jinping and U.S. President Joe Biden. But Wang Yi also stated that the path to San Francisco will not be an easy one and there is no self-driving to it. How do you interpret his state- statements? Yeah, if you look at uh, Western media and U.S. media in particular, that they are um, trying to say that this meeting has been set and uh, they are trying to uh, interpret the meaning and the potential outcome of the meeting. Uh, However, the Chinese side has been uh, more cautious about uh, uh, going to San Francisco because they need to the U.S. side to produce results and to uh, make sure that the environment is... um, uh, sort of uh, in the place for the two leaders to meet with each other and discuss important things. Because as we all know, that uh, in the past two, three years, um, even though the Biden administration came into office, um, changed some rhetoric, however, they basically maintained and continued Trump administration's main body of policy towards China. And Chinese side has been provided a couple of lists asking the U.S. side to change its policy, to change its behavior, and to contribute to a more positive agenda for China-U.S. relationship. But so far, um, because of all kinds of issues, and particularly, as I mentioned, domestic resistance, uh, the Biden administration has been, done little uh, to change that policy, and even more that they have done uh, more damage in some areas, particularly restricting uh, high-tech uh, cooperation between the two sides, which bring more damage to the bilateral relationship. Therefore, in order to have a more successful summit between the two sides, the U.S. needs to do more to actually improve the environment and help uh, the, to, to contribute to this uh, successful bilateral summit. Okay, so what do you think are the biggest challenges or obstacles that are preventing the improvement of China-U.S. ties at the moment? Well, there are multiple things. Uh, as uh, Chinese sides, and particularly Foreign Minister Wang Yi has said, uh, first of all, the U.S. side needs to commit to one China policy, making sure that the Taiwan Strait will continue to be uh, safe, uh, peaceful, and continue to be stable. And secondly, uh, China-U.S. relationship uh, has a very uh, positive win-win um, relationship in terms of uh, uh, trade and economic relationship, but that relationship has been complicated uh, because of the uh, very broad, uh, actually, abusement from the U.S. side on the notion of national security. It's been interfered and, and in some areas cut off, so that needs to be repaired. And also in other areas, uh, like people-to-people uh, exchanges uh, and positive areas like climate change cooperation, 
and, and also like uh, U.S. domestic issues, fentanyl, there's potential for cooperation, but there's also obstacles like U.S. sanctions on Chinese officials uh, and cooperations, and that needs to be reconsidered as well. So in many of the areas, uh, there's a great potential for rebuilding this relationship, but we have to start uh, from brick by brick. Uh, Particularly the U.S. side needs to, uh, again, to to try uh, harder. Mm -hmm. Well, when meeting with Blinken on Thursday, Wang Yi said that jarring voices are often heard on China-U.S. relations, but China is calm about them because China believes that the criterion for right and wrong is not determined by who has a louder voice, but by whether one behaves in line with the provisions of the Free China-U.S. communiques, with uh, the international law and the basic norms of international relations, and also with uh, the trend of the times. How do we understand those statements? Uh, well, right now, uh, in the U.S., there's supposed to be some sort of consensus, bipartisan consensus, uh, standing uh, basically t- uh, tough on China uh, and uh, trying to compete with China. Uh, but in many ways, those kind of uh, voice are not consistent uh, and violating America's old principle uh, in this world. And in particular, those Republicans in the House uh, uh, having all kinds of uh, uh, proposals or bills or legislation, uh, legislations that uh, could harm China-U.S. relationship. Uh, some of those are extremely uh, problematic. For example, some of the congressional representatives calling for the elimination of PNTR, like normal uh, trade relations between the two sides. And some even suggested uh, that the United Nations Resolution 2758 uh, does not make sure that uh, Taiwan is part of China. So many of the things are uh, uh, really, if being realized, is going to shake the foundation of China-U.S. relationship. So those voices uh, from the politicians um, are uh, very harmful to the bilateral relationship. And sometimes uh, U.S. media is also playing a very negative role in promoting these uh, ideas and trying to influence uh, society, making it a more challenging uh, environment for rational voice to speak out. So I think uh, for Minister Wang Yi's idea is that uh, moving forward, uh, the, the politicians need to bring out more co- political courage to overcome this kind of irrational and harmful voices and trying to build a positive agenda, regardless of how much political capital that they would pay for uh, domestically, so that this bilateral relationship to could be more healthy. Yeah, and as you mentioned uh, just now, the, the 2024 U.S. presidential election is looming. And um, as we all know, uh, presidential candidates likes to play the China card during their campaign. Uh, so how do you foresee U.S. domestic politics potentially impacting the dynamics of China-U.S. relations? Well, um, I'm not positive. <laughs> I'm not uh, um uh, really uh, optimistic about that outcome because uh, right now, as we know, that the politicians in the U.S., the presidential candidates are competing with each other, particularly in the Republican uh, camp, uh, for their toughness against China. And one by one, they're making their stance and uh, they're criticizing China uh, from all uh, angles. So I think next year is going to be very challenging for China-U.S. relations. And some of those politicians may try to disrupt uh, this uh, um, process of improving uh, improving China-U.S. relationship. Um, and what's uh, going to be interesting is that uh, 
uh, with the world is getting more and more uh, violent, chaotic, and uh, all kinds of global challenges are facing both countries. Uh, whether or not there will be responsible politicians from the U.S. side to come out and uh, and you know standing on the right side of history and trying to make sure that this most important bilateral relationship does not go uh, off off track and go into a very dangerous place. Uh, so that's going to be uh, what we're witnessing from now on. But at at present, I think President Biden is doing the right thing. However, whether or not he can withstand political challenge uh, domestically. That's another thing that, uh, you know, w- what we uh, need to, to see in the future. Okay. And then Wang Yi also held talks with uh, U.S. business leaders where he urged the U.S. business community to play a role as ballast in economic and trade cooperation. What does he mean by this? And how do you think business, uh, businesses can con- contribute to stabilizing bilateral ties? Well, this is a very important uh, aspect of China-U.S. relationship. Uh, recently, President Xi mentioned that uh, a business, uh, U.S. business and Chinese business, you know, uh, uh, this kind of relationship is a very important ballast for bilateral relationship. And uh, their investment, their trade, uh, and their people-to-people uh, sort of contact is the foundation of this uh, uh, very complex relationship. And with that, uh, some, you know, we can withstand some of the political attack from the extremists. Uh, on the other hand, also we witnessed recently there's the uh, ex- exchanges on the local level. We have Governor Newsom's visit to China, uh, Chinese side also increasing visit to the United States. And those exchanges are also very important because they build down uh, between the, the two sides. And more uh, exchanges and communications can uh, reduce misrepresentation of each other's intentions, reduce uh, sort of uh, 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 misinformation, and build mutual trust between the two sides. So moving forward, I think those kind of uh, local exchanges, young people exchanges, and including business exchanges and trade uh, will all help to um, resist uh, this kind of uh, uh, political uh, argument coming just out of a very small clique of Washington, D.C. politician. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you, Dr. Zhao Hai, Director of International Political Studies at the National Institute for Global Strategy, Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. This is World Today. Stay with us. You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. The 10th Beijing Xiangshan Forum is on in the Chinese capital. Security officials from more than 90 countries, regions, and international organizations are attending, including those from the U.S., Israel, and Arab states. The theme of the event is Common Security, Lasting Peace, which reflects the core concepts of the China-proposed Global Security Initiative. For more, we are now joined on the line by Joe Bo, China Forum expert and senior fellow of the Center for International Security and Strategy at Tsinghua University. So first of all, how important is such a platform um, in a time of global tensions? I think this uh, forum uh, is very important in that nowadays everything uh, that doesn't seem to have anything to do with China would eventually end up with having a lot of things to do with China. For example, in the Russo-Ukrainian war, which has nothing to do with China, China is not informed, China is not involved, but people still would ask you, which sides are you taking, what is the position 
could you do something? And likewise, in the Middle East, yeah, China actually is playing a more, more important role. This is understandable because China is a major power, and a major power should show the greater responsibility. Uh, in this forum, I think it's a very rare chance. I say rare because it was after COVID. So it's a rare chance for us to have such a grand gathering and for people to come uh, to listen to China's view on all these major issues and also provide them a good chance for them to interact with one another. Okay, and the, the theme of this year's forum is Common Security, Lasting Peace, and it focuses on the global security initiative proposed by Chinese President Xi Jinping. Uh, so can you help us understand this initiative and how does this vision contrast with traditional international approaches? Uh, well, I think President Xi has uh, made three grand uh, uh, global initiatives, uh, yeah? One, one uh, security, one, one development, another on civilization. In terms of uh, uh, security initiative, you have to see how PLA actually is contributing to world peace. Uh, basically, the Chinese uh, PLA is doing peacekeeping, counterparty, and disaster relief overseas. But if you put all this together, what does it make? Actually, PLA is only doing humanitarian operations. That is the most exceptional difference between PLA and the foreign armed forces. In other words, PLA is not killing anyone, not even a single pirate overseas. Yeah, we have some uh, territorial dispute uh, with some other countries uh, in the periphery. That is understandable because the border issue is always an issue, be it at sea or on land. But elsewhere in the rest of the world, China is not uh, fighting with anyone. China is just providing assistance. Yeah, I mean, the Chinese government and the Chinese military. So PLA's record is as clean as the snow. Yeah, but this this initiative actually envisions a shift in the balance of power in global governance. So how might this shift impact um, existing international institutions and alliances? And how might other major powers and regional actors respond to, to, to this initiative and China's role in shaping international affairs? I think the uh, Western powers would not be interested in this proposal, and they rather would take it as a challenge to the so-called liberal international order. I always argue that there is no such thing as a liberal international order, because the order itself is not uh, owning the economic rules uh, largely made by the West after the Second World War. The international order is something much more complicated. It involves, uh, you know, a country's social system, uh, the religion, national identity, culture. Some of these things have lasted for millenniums. So the order itself is much more complicated. But China's proposal of this kind of uh, global security initiative is uh, absolutely refreshing in that uh, never before has a... Uh, uh, a rising power rise so peacefully, and this is exactly how, uh, what has happened to China. China's rise is peaceful, and China, through this kind of peaceful rise, could one day, I'm talking probably less than 10 years, to reach the apogee, yeah, over, over its uh, strength. Uh, but uh, I say probably because um, most people believe in that before COVID. And because of COVID and because of China's aging population, this prospect is less to talk about. But still, people still uh, believe that this is a, a possibility. So 
So that is quite quite significant to consider China, you know, uh, a global power, a real significance. Uh, even if it is stand neck to neck with the United States, how you behave, yeah, and how you believe the world should look like would mean a lot for the rest of the world. And right now, you see the international order actually shifting towards the the the, the Asia Pacific with China in the center. Why? Because uh, I'll give you an example. Four regional powers in the Middle East, that is Iran, Egypt, UAE, and Saudi Arabia, have all joined. Yeah. BRICS, and they uh, have uh, some of them have joined the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, and some of them are still applying for Shanghai Cooperation Organization. This is most remarkable in that uh, in both SCO and BRICS, one of the countries that is Russia is actually having war with some other countries, yeah, with with the Ukraine. But why would these countries still want to join a club in which a member is having a war with others? This shows that people realize that now the international order has really changed, and the international the shift of the international order is moving in this direction. And besides, we have the so-called rise of the rest versus West. The people are not, uh, you know, stupid. People are not uh, picking sides blindly. People nowadays are picking with the issue, and they know China is important, and China is doing the right thing. So that is why they are moving closer to China. Okay, but still there are、um, crises and conflicts in different parts of the world. So, how practical are China's initiatives of common security or win-win cooperation in the current context of international relations, and how can they really be applied in resolving those ongoing crises?、Uh, you see, these、uh, proposals, the grandiose proposals, they are basically、uh, major principles, and. Definitely, with this kind of principles, we have to develop roadmaps, right?、Uh, but、um, roadmaps are only useful when people want to follow the roadmaps. For example, now uh, in both uh, uh, in Ukraine, I mean the war in Ukraine, and in the Middle East, it's difficult, yeah, for 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 China to make a proposal. That can be accepted immediately. For example, on the war in Ukraine, people uh, China has made a twelve-point plan. But the point is, that neither Russia nor Ukraine nor the United States wants to stop fighting. So in this regard, no plan you know, would will work because it's not only China has a plan; many other countries also have plans. So only when people decide to come to a ceasefire, when people are tired of fighting. Against each other, then that is when a peace plan or a concrete proposal might work. But I'm confident that in that China、uh, has no self-interest in 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 that either the war in Ukraine or in the Middle East. So, for example, in the Middle East, China is the only country that actually befriends everybody. That's a huge, huge asset. Yeah. So even if China's proposal might not be accepted at this moment. So nobody just doubt about China's sincerity. Even if Israel is not happy、uh, with China because China,、uh, they believe, failed to uh, point at uh, uh, you know Hamas and uh, uh, condemn Hamas directly, but China still expressed our、uh, good wishes, our condolences to all those、uh, innocent lives lost. So in this kind of a situation, which is almost、uh, black and white for them. It's difficult for for China, you know, 
to take any sides with anyone because there's no need for China to do that. But I believe that because China's heavy hat and because of China's impartiality, China actually would play a greater role in all conflicts around the world in the future. Mm-hmm. For example, yeah, thank you, Joe Bochana, for an expert and senior fellow of the Center for International Security and Strategy at Tsinghua University. You're listening to World Today. Stay with us. You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. Israel has widened its ground offensive in Gaza and declared the second phase of its operation against Hamas. The United Nations said hundreds of patients are stuck in hospitals in the north of Gaza and are physically impossible to move, despite a warning from Israel to evacuate south. Israeli forces also carried out a raid in the West Bank and bombed targets in Syria. The Israeli bombardment has killed more than 8,000 people in Gaza and injured more than 20,000. For more, we are now joined on the line by Tim Anderson, Director of Center for Counter-Hegemonic Studies, a Sydney-based think tank. Dr. Anderson, thanks for joining us. Welcome. So Israel says it has entered um, the second phase of its operation against Hamas. Uh, what are the features of this second phase and how does that differ from the first phase? I think the, the main difference is they're including this ground invasion, which has begun. And there are tanks and other vehicles that have entered um, Gaza and tried to divide the strip in half, basically. The initial phase was basically aerial bombing, which was very indiscriminate. And of course, we've all seen the images of all the injured civilians and children there. At this stage, they say they're going in to try and um, find the Hamas militants, but they're still carrying out aerial bombing. Yeah, and, and actually Israel's actions in Gaza have raised concerns about a humanitarian catastrophe. How much do we know about the current humanitarian situation in Gaza and what can possibly be done to help address the crisis? Well, we know quite a lot because despite all of the problems, there is still a, a Gaza health system functioning. And there's been, up until recently, there's been large numbers of reports and video reports of the injured and, and dead coming into the hospitals. And um, there, there was a brief shutdown of the internet um, while the Israelis were moving their armed forces into the area, but uh, it seems to have resumed. There seems to be, maybe it's through Egyptian um, Wi-Fi, I'm not sure, but there seems to be some reports um, still coming out from Gaza about the large, as you said, 8,000 reported to be dead. About 40% of the whole population are children. We've seen lots and lots of images and videos of the children wounded too. And uh, of course, the other problem is that the the lack of uh, the, the blockade, which prevents any humanitarian supplies coming in, and while the Israelis have cut electricity and water uh, and, and food, so it's really a very dire situation. Yeah, and actually we are seeing a multi-front flare-up in the region, uh, with Israel striking targets in Lebanon and, and also uh, tensions escalating. How do you see uh, the potential for this conflict to spill over into a broader regional crisis? There's a very high risk of that happening. And of course, um, it's really exacerbated by the fact that the Israelis have been bombing, including white phosphorus bombing South Lebanon and also bombing in Syria, as you mentioned. Uh, and there, there is also some small scale attacks on Israeli military 
bases in the north of occupied Palestine and uh, to some extent in parts of Lebanon and the south of Lebanon, which are still occupied by Israeli military bases. So there's some conflict going on in the north too. Okay, so uh, the recent vote at the UN General Assembly has uh, resulted in the U.S. and Israel being quite isolated, with only 12 countries opposing the motion for humanitarian truce. But, I mean, what do you make of the rationale behind uh, the U.S. opposition to a ceasefire in the ongoing conflict? Yes, I think the vote at the UN was 120 to 14 with 45 abstentions. So a lot of the Europeans were abstaining there because they, many of them have been persuaded now to um, lend some at least limited support to the idea of a ceasefire. Whereas from the US side, and the US is really often isolated at the UN when it comes to Israel, um, the US has been uh, pushing this line that the Israelis should have a free hand to do what they like uh, in Gaza. So how do you think the U.S. stands on this issue may affect the situation on the ground? And how might, I mean, what do you make of the fact that even some close allies of the U.S., like France, Spain and the U.K., um, have refused to join the U.S. in opposing the motion? Well, there's significant pressure mounting in a lot of those um, states and also in my country, Australia, because of the images of all the civilians that have been killed by the aerial bombing going on in Gaza that's really a very dire situation. The UN Secretary-General has drawn attention to it too and called for a ceasefire. So there's, uh, the Europeans are pulled in two directions in a way they, uh, many of them don't want to confront the US with its policy, but on the other hand, they are hearing the message and, and really the, the conscience of the world has been raised by all of these images coming out of Gaza. I mean, there's been rallies in, in many, many countries around the world. So yeah. I think that there's that internal pressure on the Europeans about uh, a ceasefire and trying to do something, say something useful about ending the violence. Mm. Yes, but just how feasible is it to achieve a truce in a current context? And perhaps what diplomatic efforts should be undertaken to facilitate a resolution to the crisis? Well, really, the, the intractability of the situation lies in the fact that the Palestinians are a, a huge population. There is many... Palestinian Arabs in historic Palestine as there are Jewish Israelis. And they've been denied citizen rights for a very, very long time. So this conflict has been brewing for a very long time because of the nature, the apartheid nature of the Israeli regime, in a sense, um, is not going away in a hurry unless there's some restructuring of that regime. I mean, there have been demands from many independent legal reports in recent times, just in the last few years, to dismantle this apartheid regime and allow full citizenship rights for the Palestinians. But that's been resisted by the Israelis and by their main sponsors. Okay, thank you, Dr. Tim Manerson, Director of the Center for Counter-Hegemonic Studies, a Sydney-based think tank. You're listening to World Today. Stay with us. You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. Profits at China's industrial firms rose for a second month in September, adding to signs of a stabilizing economy. The nearly 12% yearly increase followed a gain of 17% in August. Analysts attribute the stabilization to recent policy measures rolled out by the government. On a nine-month basis, data from the National Bureau of Statistics shows the profit of major industrial firms slid 9% from a year ago to over 5 trillion yuan or over 700 billion U.S. dollars. 
The raw materials manufacturing sector led the overall improvement of profits in the third quarter. Meanwhile, China's outbound investment maintained its growth momentum in the first nine months of this year. Non-financial ODI from China increased by nearly 12 percent, reaching 96 billion U.S. dollars from January to September. For more, my colleague Zhao Yang spoke to Dr. Zhou Mi, a senior research fellow with the Chinese Academy of International Trade and Economic Cooperation. So, Dr. Zhou, first of all, how do you explain the latest industrial profit numbers? We know in the first half of this year, the Chinese economy is still under pressure, especially for the industrial sectors. They are under pressure. But if we are looking at the data, I found that some sectors are getting much better than the first half of this year, including the manufacturing and also the electricity and and the thermal sectors. So we we can see that these sectors are having a much better performance on the increase of the profits. If you are even looking at some of the materials sectors, they are still getting better. So we know that the pandemic has a very big and heavy impact on the profits of the enterprises. But now they are getting better in the coming,、uh, you know, next months. I will see that there will be better future. And what's your view on the demand picture here in China? How do you look at the global environment for China's economy this and the next year? Uh, I would say that、uh, the consumption has very close connections with the、uh, supply side. If you are looking at、uh, industries when they are trying to make decisions on whether they will provide more products and re- increase their uh, uh, inventory, I would say that they really see the potentials of the increase of the、uh, consum-、uh, consumption market. Actually, if you are looking at the global market, I still have not many confidence on the recovery in the short term. But I I would say that some parts of the world is getting better, like for the developing countries and also some of the countries around us. So they are trying to re-establish、uh, new connections、uh, between them and trying to improve the supply chains. As for China's own domestic market, I would say that consumption is recovering, and、uh, not in a very fast. A faster speed, but it still are trying to be more sustainable. So the peoples are really good at uh, uh, trying to make more confidence on getting better on the technology products, including something to do with the intelligent,、uh, like the、uh, smartphones and also some smart furnitures at home.、Mm-hmm. So I would say that、uh, these kind of uh, new uh, new areas will bring more. Potentials or some of the you know prospect from the manufacturings, so they will do more to meet those demand.、Mm-hmm. So, what do you make of the property market, Dr. Joe? Now, are we really have some pickup signs? Actually, for the real asset, I I still see that there are lot of things we have to do with the stocks. But I I can find that many cities, including some main cities of China, are having much more better. Policies to let the the people to buy the houses. I, I have found that several main cities, including Shenzhen and also Shanghai, they are trying to give some permissions for the people not living there. Uh, but actually, they are trying to have a better, uh, you know, work there to buy the houses in some part of these areas and include many、uh, related. 
policies, about the loans, about you know different things to support the real estate companies. They are really trying to address the problem, not to increase so unnecessary unnecessary houses, but trying to make a better use of what we are now having and make a sustainable way of the real estate. And I, I would say that is uh, still are promising if we not, not only looking at uh, citizens, but also some of the enterprises like the retails or other businesses, they are welcome to to be to put more emphasis in Chinese market, like for the investors in the service sectors, this is uh, uh, much more possible. And what we see now is that the physical stimulus is playing a very big role, especially when China announced the uh, 1 trillion yuan government bonds to support the economy. So how significant is that from your perspective? I think that is uh, one of our tools that has been proved uh, very effective in the past. When we are talking about the, the investment from the government, it's really are playing very important role not only to provide the jobs, but also to improve the infrastructure. We I noticed that uh, these policies uh, this term are trying to pay more attention on the disaster release or uh, some kind of things to improve the infrastructure. This is some of the short parts of the infrastructure. Actually, China has developed very quickly. So in the past uh, decades, uh, the infrastructure have proved to be very effective. But I, I don't think that is still enough for us to have a better development in the continuously in the coming years. So we need to address these shortcomings and we should try to strengthen that. Well, I, I can still find that some of the policies are trying to uh, deal with the debt issues, which is also one of the things we have to be very careful about because the risks are still there. We need to try to put them in a safe way to reduce that. And we are going to make it more healthy for the development of the different uh, areas in China. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, China's outbound investment maintained its growth momentum in the first nine months of this year. The latest figures show that uh, the non-financial ODI from China increased by nearly 12%. So how do you explain this jump in China's outbound investment this year? I would say that uh, the incentives for the companies to go abroad are mainly two reasons. The first one is that they are getting bigger and stronger and they want to experience the multinational cooperation with other countries. So they need to try to enhance their abilities in the global supply chains by the investment. This is their own aspect. And for the, from another fact, I would say that the, there are so many opportunities in other countries while the host countries are really want to cooperate with Chinese government. So in the Belt and Road Cooperative Forum and also different ways, they want to attract the Chinese investors. They are providing better policies to support that. So both factors are really important for the outcome Mm-hmm. Uh, investment from China, and I really see that uh, they are going to even strengthen the bilateral relationship between us and the host countries. Mm-hmm. And as you mentioned, Chinese enterprises' uh, outbound investment in Belt and Road participating countries actually, you know, see a increase of over twenty percent this year. So, how does it benefit China and also the participating countries? So, could you give us some specific examples? As for the outward investment in the Belt and Road 
regions, I would say that Chinese companies are really confident in doing that, not only because they have some experiences, but also they believe that the relationship between us will be better. Many Chinese companies are investing in the uh, like for the Southeast Asia countries to improve the infrastructure, including the, the ways, the highways, but also some of the financial infrastructure, like for the payment, for the e-payment or different kind of uh, e-commerce support. So some Chinese companies are not doing that by themselves. They are uh, collect, cooperating with many other related companies in the supply chains, ways in the clusters, investment in Malaysia, in Indonesia. So they are really providing a much more stable macro environment for Chinese companies to invest there to to meet the demand of the local country and also benefit by the uh, cooperation along the supply chains. And how do you view the China-U.S. relations, especially the business and economic relations? How will that impact the economy of both of these two countries? I think that uh, the bilateral relation between China and the United States is very important. No matter what happened between us, I still see that uh, there are so many potentials, especially from the market side. We know that uh, the California, one of the biggest states in the uh, United States, is also very curious about the cooperation with China, and there are so many other states in the United States, they really want to cooperate with us because not only for the sustainable market, but also for the open mind on developing the technology and providing better environment for the investors to do the innovations. So I would say that uh, it will be much more beneficial for both sides and for the rest of the world. That's Dr. Zhou Mi, Senior Research Fellow with the Chinese Academy of International Trade and Economic Cooperation, speaking with my colleague Zhao Yang. You're listening to World Today. We'll be back. You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Yang. The weekend before Halloween has seen deadly mass shootings in several U.S. cities. At least 11 people died and 76 others were injured. This comes as the country mourns the victims of its deadliest mass shooting this year. Days earlier, 18 people were killed in a shooting in Lewiston, Maine. For more, we are now joined on the line by Professor Joseph Syracuse, Dean of Global Futures with Curtin University in Australia. Thanks for joining us, Professor Syracuse. In your opinion, what factors may be contributing to the frequency of these mass shootings in the U.S.? Well, a lot of them are copycats. You know, they see people get away with it. And these are young people who have no control over their temper. A number of these people have mental illnesses and they they turn to guns as a way of expressing themselves. You know, uh, when, when, when America had a regular army, that is a draft army, you learned how to use guns and respectfully and you, you had boundaries. You know, today, uh, a child, a 15-year-old, can, can get their hands on an assault rifle walk into a, you know, a pizza parlor or someplace and just open fire. I mean, this doesn't make any sense. Now, I understand this is about, there's 500 of these mass killings since January 1st. That's uh, four or more people who are shot, but not the actual shooter himself. So this is a, uh, this is an epidemic in the United States. And of course, uh, because of America's fondness for the uh, 
for guns, that is the right to carry guns and the right to possess guns, it's very, very hard to get a handle on this. You know, we, we try to improve ways to uh, check people out, make them wait a little bit for a gun. But these, um, these, these, these shootings you're talking about, and I know one of those neighborhoods, I grew up in Chicago. This was uh, in, in, in one of the areas that I used to, uh, uh, you know, uh, live and, um, you know, just um, 11 people were shot at a block party. They were just uh, having some fun. It was about two o'clock in the morning. Somebody came in and somebody showed up and they didn't want him. They threw him out. So he came back with a gun and got even with him. I mean, this is just it doesn't make any sense. Okay, and and in the meantime, we know that the ripple effects from the Gaza conflict are being felt around the world. We've seen protests in different parts of the world and some um, hate crime or violence. Um, has the conflict also given rise to hate crimes in the U.S.? I don't know about hate crimes. I mean, uh, uh, Americans can hate each other without shooting each other. They can do it other other ways. You know, I, I trace all this back, and I've lived a long life during the Vietnam War. Uh, a former Marine climbed a tower in Texas, I don't know, shot 20, 30 people. And I, I always thought that the Vietnam War televised night after night with all these violent attacks on the Vietnamese and the Vietnamese on the South Vietnamese and the Americans, this, this raw uh, this raw hatred every night on the television screen, I, I think it brutalized a generation of Americans. And in my lifetime, uh, this guy Manson, uh, uh, I think Whitman, this guy Whitman climbed this tower and he started killing all these people. I think that was the first time I connected the brutalization of the Vietnam War. Let's face it, if youngsters are watching war each time on television, whether it's Gaza, Vietnam, or Chechnya, uh, it, it, people just, um, they, they sort of lose uh, perspective. They start to think that this is maybe a game. But uh, this has been going on since... Uh, since I was young, and there's uh, no more explanation now than there was then. Do you mean that the media has a responsibility? No, no, you, you, you do the right thing. The media reports things, uh, you know, and, but when people start seeing things, they, they, you know, they, we have these so-called copycat killers. You know, they see how easy it is to shoot people up, etc. And, you know, in, in, in Chicago, it used to be drug dealers kill each other. Now they kill each other if somebody gets insulted or someone's trying to hijack a car, it be, become a very easy way of bringing down your, uh, your, your opponent. And these are youngsters. These aren't, you know, adults. These aren't real adults. Uh, these are kids under 21 years old uh, doing most of the shooting. So in, in, in that sense, uh, I mean, it's not the media's fault. It's not that, or, or, you know, Charlton Heston, the great American actor, used to say, uh, guns don't kill people, people kill people. Mm -hmm. And so they make this decision to, to kill somebody, whether they're of their right mind or not. But as far as a hate crime is concerned, that was invented in the last 30 years to make a felony murder even worse than it was. I mean, I think taking a, a person's life is pretty damn serious. To call it a hate crime, well, that's doubly serious. But you never know what's on a person's mind when he starts to uh, kill his neighbor. Yeah, people kill people, but when he's using a gun, it becomes much more dangerous. And if we look at the experience of some other countries, uh, they have actually implemented strict gun control measures after mass shootings, and uh, they are resulting in fewer gun-related deaths. Uh, what obstacles exist in the U.S. that have prevented similar policies from being enacted? Well, I, I've been in Australia 50 years, and one, uh, one I think one Saturday morning, uh, a, young, a young man... Uh, killed about 30 people in Tasmania, and then within a couple weeks, couple months, 
uh, Prime Minister uh, Howard uh, bought back all the guns and the people turned them in. And so they got rid of most of the guns. Now, mind you, some farmers got to keep their guns and other people kept their guns. And there are other ways to kill people. But but in Australia, there is no Second Amendment. There is no right to bear arms, which Americans identify with their DNA, with the history of their uh, uh, their origins. You know, keep in mind, America did not come to power by a simple vote. It came to power out of the barrel of a gun. America was a revolution. They killed a lot of people, and a lot of people were killed in America before Americans were free. So, you know, Americans have that tradition, and, uh, and frankly, no one's going to take it away from them. Yeah, and actually every time the U.S. suffers another mass shooting, uh, those gun right activists would argue that if a good guy with a gun has been there, the tragedy could have been prevented. But um, that argument has been dismissed by uh, gun control groups as an unrealistic suggestion. Um, how, how do we understand this debate in the U.S.? Well, you're right. That is an unrealistic. Actually, the truth is, when there is a terrible shooting, like that guy in, I guess, Las Vegas killed all those people at a at, at a music uh, rally. Uh, Americans went out and bought more guns for home protection. You know, the the actual shootings themselves uh, reinforce America's desire to own guns, more guns. And there must be four or five hundred uh, million guns out there. And, and as I've liked to say in the media over the years, it, it is easier to buy a gun than it is to stand in line and buy a, a McDonald's hamburger. It takes less time. You can buy a gun in 10 minutes in a lot of places or at the gun shows. You can buy a gun. And, you know, guns are very fascinating. I'll make a small confession. Uh, when I was a youngster, my father took me hunting so that I could have respect for guns and rifles and all that. And I, I met all of his shooting friends, and they didn't shoot anybody. They were very respectful. I mean, it, it's it, you could be actually a pretty good person and learn how to use a gun without being a nutter. But today, you know, they sell the guns to anybody. And, you know, a 15-year-old kid, 16-year-old kid, he wants to go back to high school and kill everybody that bullied him. Well, not much you can do about that if he steals mom or dad's gun. So, you know, we got a lot of tricky corners there. Yeah, yeah, that's that's really a problem. Thank you, Professor Joseph Syracuse, Dean of Global Futures with Curtin University in Australia. And that's all the time we have for this edition of World Today. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. Thank you so much for listening. See you next time.